0: Now, when we come to chapter 11, we see God's future purpose with Israel. He's gathering out a remnant and has been now for 1900 years, and he's going to redeem a nation someday. That's exactly what he's saying in chapter 11. Chapter 9, God's past dealings with Israel. Chapter 10, God's present dealings with Israel. He's saving Those that will come to him through Christ. The remnant of Israel is finding salvation. God's always had a remnant. And somebody says, well, it seems to me to be a very small remnant. It's larger than you think it is. I'm confident of that. But after all, there are about 15 million of the nation Israel throughout the world. That, of course, is an estimation But out of that number, the percentage of those that are believers today is probably better than of the Gentile world with, what, three billion here on this earth? And that means that the percentage actually of Israel is greater than probably any other people. And that is something for us to keep in mind. We have seen that the Nation rejected Christ and the righteousness of God in Christ, which was offered them by faith, and God has rejected them as a nation temporarily. And two questions naturally arise. Has God permanently rejected them as a nation? In other words, does the nation Israel have a future? Are all the promises of the Old Testament nullified by the rejection of Israel? God promised, promised it to the nation Israel in the Old Testament. He said, they'll be the head and not the tail of the nation. All the promises of the Old Testament will have a literal fulfillment. Paul makes that clear. And this present age of grace was anticipated in the Old Testament. And today, the remnant is finding salvation as the Gentiles do. Now, what's his future purpose with Israel? Well, we find out that the remnant today will be regathered as a nation and redeemed in the future. That's God's future purpose. But the remnant of Israel today is finding salvation. And that's in the first six verses. Will you notice it? Listen to Paul. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid... What people is he talking about? Israel, friends. And in case the Amalelis misses this, Paul put it here so he wouldn't miss it. And he put it here so the liberal wouldn't miss it either. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if I didn't have any other scripture but this... And I've got thousands of scriptures, by the way, to back this up. But if I didn't have any but this, it would be sufficient. God has not cast away Israel as a nation. Just because he has a present purpose today of calling out a people throughout the world. And Paul makes that purpose very clear in this chapter here. And it's true that he's talking about those that are descended from Abraham. And Paul says... He's of the tribe of Benjamin, and it means the 12 tribes of Israel. He belonged to a tribe that never seceded from the nation. He could not be called a disloyal Israelite. He was an Israelite 100%. Now, verses 2 and 3. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew, what ye not, or know ye not, what the Scripture saith of Elijah... How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I'm left alone, and they seek my life. Now I love this. Paul uses old Elijah's an illustration, and believe me, he makes a good one. Now, Elijah stood for God, and he stood alone. I admire that man standing alone yonder on the top of Mount Carmel. Here is a man standing for God. And Noah stood alone for God. But here, Elijah goes to the Lord to complain. He says, I'm alone. No one. And God says, wait a minute. You think you're alone, but you're not. And he says that there's 7,000 that never bowed the knee. God has always had a remnant. Now, these are the folk God has chosen. Notice what he says here. Verse 4. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And if there were 7,000 men, about twice as many women, if you go by the percentage. And that'd be quite a few. That was a remnant of the nation. And Elijah was totally unaware that God was working in the hearts of 7,000 men. There was a good remnant in the days of Ahab and Jezebel in that northern kingdom. Now, verse 5, "...even so then at this present time also there's a remnant according to the election of grace." Now, God has always had a remnant in the nation Israel. Now, that remnant today are those that are in the church. They have accepted Christ. And that's the reason Paul's going to be able to say all Israel's not Israel. Verse 6, "...and if by grace..." then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be a works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, grace and works represent two mutually exclusive systems. They're diametrically opposed to each other. And the remnant at this time are those that are not saved by works or by merit, but they're saved by the grace of God. That is what Paul is saying. The future purpose of God from the day Paul wrote down to the present is those that will accept the grace of God. Now, what about the others that don't accept? Well, the remainder of Israel is hardened in verses 7 through 10. And they were hardened, notice this, because they fail and they did not fail because they were hardened. There A lot of folk get the cart before the horse. In fact, they get the horse in the cart and he doesn't belong there. Notice verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, were they blinded, and then they didn't come? No. They were exposed to the gospel as no people have been exposed to him. God said, I've held out my arms all day long to this people. And it's difficult to do that. He's patient with them. Now, they are blinded because they would not accept the light. That is the important thing. Now, will you notice verse 8? According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see ears they should not hear unto this day. They had rejected. And when a man rejects, he becomes the most difficult object to try to reach, with the grace of God. I wish I had time to deal with that in detail. Now, verse 9, "...and David said, Let their table be made a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them." Now, the table has reference to feasting, which is representative of material prosperity. The children of Israel had great feasts at which they were actually guests of God. They didn't invite God in as the pagans did, God invited them in, and the Passover was that kind of a feast. Now, the thought is that they are feasting in a conceited confidence which is entirely pagan. Their carnal security deceived them as to their true spiritual ruin. They trusted the things they ate without any true confidence in God. And my friend, that is the condition at the present moment of multitudes of church members. Now, he says, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back altogether. God gives light in order that men might see. But if they're blind, then they won't see. And the light reveals the blindness even today of multitudes of people. I'm amazed that so many smart people just don't seem to understand what the Bible is all about. We come today to the reason for setting aside the nation Israel. Well, very plainly and succinctly, it was for the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul's going to say that. Now, will you listen to him in verse 11? I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles to provoke them, that is, Israel, to jealousy. Or, if I may give you my translation, I say then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Away with the thought. That's not it. But by their false step or false, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, Paul opens this verse with the same engaging inquire as he did back in verse 1 you remember he raised the question then? I say then if God cast away his people. Now, will you notice what he's saying here? Rejection is only partial and it's only temporary. His question is, have they stumbled in such a way that they'll not rise again? And the answer is an emphatic negative. Their fall has enabled God through his providence to open the gates of salvation wide to the Gentiles. The Jew will see the reality of the salvation of the Gentiles, that they are experiencing the blessing of God, which the Jew thought could only come to him. And this should move him to emulation, not jealousy as we define it. I think today that in that land, I know that we've had several guides there that were Jews. And I think they're rather puzzled. That we are so interested in the things that are Jewish, that are in the nation Israel. They marvel at that because there's nothing quite like it. I enjoy London, England, and I enjoy that country because I had ancestors that came from there. But I'll be very frank with you. I was in several countries, and one of them is Egypt. My first thought when I get to Egypt is to get out of there, and I don't want to go by camel either. I want to go by jet. That's no place to stay. I've seen the pyramids and that big hunk of rock there. I've seen it. Now that's it. I don't want to go back. But there is today an interest. And that's something that these people can't understand. And they want to know. One man who was a Jewish guy talked to me about it. He said, I want to know more about these things. Quite interesting. Verse 12. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentile, how much more their fullness. Now, if today they have been set aside as a nation, and they have, God's not dealing with them. When God deals with them, they won't have any problem over there with the Arab, by the way. That'll all be solved. And they'll not be in that land in fear, because he's made it very clear that every man... He's going to dwell in peace and tranquility on his own vine, his own fig tree. None shall make him afraid. They're scared to death today, and they're running scared. And you can't blame them for that. But the day is coming when they'll be received. Now, if today they're setting aside, has brought the grace of God to Gentiles, when they're received again... What about the grace of God to Gentiles? It'll be multiplied. James made that clear in the 15th of Acts at that great council of Jerusalem. He said that God today is calling out of the Gentiles of people to his name, just the same as he's doing out of Israel. Now, he says, but after this, he will return. He will restore, a build again, the tabernacle of David that's fallen down. And then what he's going to do? All the Gentiles. Now, that's my reason for making periodically a statement that sometimes puzzles folk. You know, the greatest revival, if you want to call it that, that ever happened so far on this earth took place before the church got here. A man by the name of Jonah went into the city of Nineveh and saw the entire city, and that may have meant the nation at that time turned to God. On the day of Pentecost, and I hear so many people, oh, let's repeat Pentecost. What percentage do you think were saved? It was a feast that all the males were required to go to Jerusalem. Must have been several hundred thousand in the environs of Jerusalem. How many were saved? Well, let's add up the first few days and give them 10,000. Probably that many after the first few days of preaching. May I say to you, pretty small percentage, is it not? And the greatest revival since then took place in the Hawaiian Islands. And actually, the percentage there was not great. It could have been 50%. But that's not like it was in the days of Jonah. And I believe that the greatest revival will take place after the church leaves this earth. Then I use the term revival in a general sense, that is, people turning to God. I think that multitudes of Gentiles will turn to God not only in the great tribulation period, but in the millennium. Because nations will enter the millennium, and a great many of them are going to like it. And they're going to turn to God in that period. I believe that with all my heart. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Now, verse 13 and 14, he says, "...for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles." I magnify mine office, if by any means I might provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. Now, let me give you my translation. I think it'll help you here in the understanding of these two verses. He says, but I speak to you, the Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry. That is, Paul says, I magnify or glorify my ministry because I am the apostle to the Gentiles. If by any means I may move to emulation, that is, provoke the jealousy, them of my flesh and may say some of them. Now, Paul says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I rejoice in that. But as I preach to the Gentiles, I hope it will move many of my brethren, many of my people, those that are after my flesh, to turn to Christ also. That is what he's saying. And Paul, you remember, wrote to the Corinthians, and he said to them, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Now, that's the reason he went to Jerusalem, shaved his head, took an oath. Somebody says, Oh, he shouldn't have done that. He lived under grace. Well, does under grace mean you can't do that? Under grace means you can do it or not do it. And Paul wanted to win his brethren. That's important. Very important, by the way. And now he says, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. He said, I'm obeying Christ. And that's the reason I did it. That I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak. That I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That is the thing that he say. He explains why he reported to the Jews of the conversion of Gentiles. He was first of all fulfilling his office as an apostle to the Gentiles. And in so doing, he was trying to motivate his brethren, move them to Christ, to turn to him, his brethren according to the flesh. Some turned to Christ. It was a few, but it was some. And in all of this, Paul was fulfilling his ministry and God was accomplishing his purpose in this age with both Jew and Gentile. And you know, it's a great satisfaction to do what you are confident God's called you to do. I have been more satisfied as a minister since I've retired in what I'm doing than any time in my entire ministry. I got so involved in church work. You do have a lot of spiritual babes to burp, and you have to put up with a great deal. But in this radio ministry, I just shut the door here and shut the world out. And I can teach the Word of God and know that it's going out. There's been a deep satisfaction to me in teaching the Word of God and doing what you believe God's called you to do. And I just have to trust these tapes. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm making a tape, friend. And it will be multiplied. And They'll be sent all over the world, played on different radio stations everywhere. And I just trust them. I just trust the Lord. This is in his hands. Deep satisfaction in that, my friend. You can imagine the satisfaction is. And I would love to get you in that position today to do what God wants you to do. Now, I'm confident God doesn't want all of you to support the program. And the reason I say that's because all of you are not doing it. But I know God wants some of you. I have several wonderful partners in this ministry. They're laymen. I have one man that's right here in Pasadena. I think I could call him up and he'd move heaven and hell in order to help us in this ministry. He's a partner. He's provided this marvelous headquarters we have here. And I know another man, you'd be surprised, the head of the organization, if I'd tell you about it. tremendous organization, covers this country. And he's taking care of several of these stations for us, you see. They're partners. And these men, the thing I've noticed about them, they get deep satisfaction in doing this thing. This is their ministry. They're satisfied in doing this for God today. Oh, my friend... I'd like to get you to the place. Now, he may want you to get busy and teach a Sunday school class. He may want you to get busy and do personal work. He may want you to go into business in a business enterprise to be able to reach people. And it'll be a deep satisfaction when you arrive there. Now, I keep on reading here. I'm sorry I got bogged down there, but I felt this is rather important. Now, he says in verse 15, for if the casting away of them, that is, Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I think that verse is very clear. It's a wonderful thing. I think the greatest days are ahead of us, friends. As far as man is concerned, the world's going to the dogs. Things are bad when you look outside today. Isn't that true? And man, today's got this thing in a mess. But my God, he's on the throne. And he's going to straighten it out, you know. And the greatest days yet are in the future. Oh, oh, what a future. I felt sorry for a man that was talking to a businessman over in Hawaii. He was out on the golf course where I was. And I just walking around. And uh, wasn't playing that time. And he began to talk, where are you from, and all that sort of thing. Who are you? What are you doing? I told him, and he told me he was a businessman. He's from Chicago. And he apparently is a prominent businessman. Vice president of some concern. I know he's got money. But he is a man that, oh, how pessimistic he is about the future. A lot of people are pessimistic about the future today, friend. Doesn't look bright on the outside, but a glorious future for the child of God. I feel like saying hallelujah. If I wasn't such a dignified preacher, I'd say hallelujah. Now, verse 16, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. Now, what he's saying here is that part of the dough, that is, when I say dough, I mean bread dough. And God, you remember back there in Numbers, he says, "...of the first of your dough you shall give unto the Lord a heave offering in your generations." And it's a wonder I haven't made something of that before now, the first of your dough. But what he means is bread dough. Now, a part of the dough was offered to God as a token that it was all acceptable. The first fruits evidently refers to the origin of the nation. And what he's saying here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, holy here has no reference to a moral quality, but the fact that they were set aside for God. Now, if the first fruits, and if the first part of dough, little bit of dough, if that was set aside for God, what about the whole harvest? What about the nation? It all belongs to God. You see, God's not through with him. And if some of the branches be broken off, And thou, being a wild olive tree, were graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. You and I benefit because of the nation Israel. That's the reason I could never be an anti-Semite. Never could. I owe too much to them as a nation. Now, will you notice verse 18 and 19? Boast not against the branches... You and I have no right to be anti-Semitic. We have no right to boast of anything. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Everything you and I have is rooted in the fact God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he called this nation. And out of that nation, he brought Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. I couldn't be an anti-Semite. Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be graft in. <laughs> we might boast along that line. But the olive tree is Israel and the wild olive is the church. We need to remember that. Verse 20. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off and thou standest by faith, be not high-minded but fear. And the important thing is Unbelief set them aside, and we only stand because of faith. Oh, my Christian friend today, you do not stand before God on your merit, your church membership. You stand on one basis alone. You believe in Christ, and that puts you in Christ. Now, this is a word of warning. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. And if you want to know what's going to happen to the organized church, and I'm more and more convinced that the church of Laodicea goes into the Great Tribulation, there's not a saved member in it. As Dr. George Gill used to say, some churches will meet on Sunday morning after the rapture, and they won't miss a member. That's Laodicea. Now, he says to the church of Philadelphia... I'm keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on this earth. That's the great tribulation. He promised he'd keep them. That's the church today that has an open door before it and is getting out the word of God. That's a church I belong to, friend. I belong to a church. That invisible body of believers today that believe that the word of God should be gotten out. Hope you belong to that church. You do, you belong to my church today. And it's an invisible body of believers, and that church will be taken out at the time of the rapture. And it'll be before the Great Tribulation. Now he says here, if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Now the church today, the liberalism that's based on a philosophy, a ritual, based on going through some sort of religious gyroflexion, All of this sort of thing today. May I say to you, they do not belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have here the restoration of the nation Israel brings the greatest blessing. And what a great blessing it is to bring on the world today. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward the goodness If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. Now, these are stern words. Paul calls upon the Gentiles, behold, two examples. Rejected Israel reveals the severity of God. But to Gentiles who have turned to God, the benevolent goodness of God is revealed. And my friends, those two sides of God need to be revealed today. Judgment of God against rejection of Christ and sin and the grace of God to those that will trust Christ. Let me read verse 23. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again. And Israel will turn to God. The Old Testament makes that very clear, that this nation is going to turn to God. They'll even ask, what mean those nail prints in your hands? He said, I receive those in the house of my friends. They'll weep and wail because of that. The great day of atonement. They'll turn to God. God will save them because he's going to save them just like he saves us. by his marvelous, infinite mercy and grace. Now I'm reading verse 26 and 27. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Now, I think this has been greatly misunderstood when it says, All Israel shall be saved. He doesn't mean every individual Israelite will be saved. That's not what he's saying. It's national. It's the corporate nation. It is the nation that he has had before us in this chapter. Not individuals. It has been a remnant. And it'll be a remnant during the Great Tribulation period after the church is removed. We're told 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes makes a total of a One hundred and forty-four thousand. Now, I do not know whether that's the total remnant during the Great Tribulation. I think, frankly, that there are probably others. But what he's talking about here is not the individuals, but the nation as a nation. He's talking about the fact that the nation Israel will be saved. Now, the quotation that he uses, "...the Redeemer shall come to Zion unto them that turn from transgression..." In Jacob saith the Lord. Now, the message to the individual is they'll have to turn from transgression in Jacob to the Lord. Now, there'll be that remnant that will turn. That's the nation Israel that he's talking about. And all of them will be saved. And I wish that I could develop this more. We have a great many scriptures in my book on Romans, Reasoning Through Romans. But the important thing is that you see that he's not speaking of the individuals 100%. There's always been just a remnant. There was in Elijah's day, as we've seen. There was in David's day. And there was in Paul's day. And there's a remnant today. And it'll be a remnant in the Great Tribulation. Now, verses 28 and 29... As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now, as touching are with reference to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching are with reference to the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. For the gifts of grace and the calling of God are without repentance. That is a change of mind. What Paul is saying here is that he's summing up the preceding discussion. There have been two lines of thought which are seemingly in conflict and contradictory, and both are true. In the first place, Israel is regarded as an enemy for the sake of the Gentiles. That is, so the gospel can go to the Gentiles. On the other hand, they are beloved for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, a Christian cannot indulge, therefore in any form of anti-Semitism. That's a point I've made before. I continue to make it. Now, the failure of Israel, and our failure likewise, will not alter the plan and purpose of God. The gifts here are not natural gifts. The word has to do with grace. The calling is not an invitation, but it's the effectual calling of God, and that's even without repentance. It's not your shedding of tears great many people think they're going to have to shed tears to be saved. Now, I can understand that shedding of tears could be a byproduct, especially of a very emotional person who turns to Christ. But your tears have anything in the world to do with your salvation. It's your faith in Christ. And that faith is not meritorious. It's Christ who's meritorious. And your faith enables you to lay hold of him. Verses 30 and 31, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, but through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. Now, you see, Paul is writing here to Gentiles. The church in Rome was largely a Gentile church. By this time, many Gentiles were being saved. And he's drawing here a contrast between the nation Israel and the Gentiles. In time past, the Gentiles did not believe. But now a remnant of the Gentiles have obtained mercy. Now, during this same period, Israel who formerly believed does not believe as a nation. And Paul puts down the principle by which God saves both Jew and Gentile, and it's by mercy. Just as he showed mercy to the Gentiles, he'll show mercy to the nation Israel. Verse 32, for God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. That is all, both Jew and Gentile are in the awful state of stubborn rebellion and aggravated unbelief. And this means that by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Now we come here to this last division in chapter 11. And here is the reason for restoring the nation Israel. And what's the reason? Well, it's locked in the riches of the wisdom of God. Now, my friend, let's put it down that what God is doing is wise. And that what he's doing is right. And that what he is doing is the best that can be done. As we've said before, it's the natural man. And you and I have an old nature that questions God when he makes a decision. I've heard many Christians say, why are the heathen laws? Don't receive the gospel? God has no right to do that. My friend, God has every right that's imaginable. He's God. And what he's doing is right. If you don't think it is, your thinking is wrong. He's right. And if you don't think he's being smart, you're wrong. God's not stupid. You are, and I am, but not God, my friend. Oh, how we need to recognize this. Now, he says here, listen to him, All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. A glorious place Paul's come to. Paul now puts all of this in the wisdom and the glory of God. Or as Goday put it, he says it's like a traveler who's reached the summit of an alpine ascent. The apostle turns and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illumine them. And there spreads all around an immense horizon, which his eye commands. Now, this section we've come to is nothing in the world but pure praise to God. And he's not offering any argument at all. Yet it's the greatest argument that is imaginable. If you and I do not understand the why of God's dealings with Israel and the Gentiles and ourselves, it's not because there's not a good and sufficient reason. The difficulty is with us today to understand it. I remember that when I took my little girl, she got fever 104 over Phoenix, Arizona. We were driving back from Texas, and I took her to the hospital. Poor little sick thing. She said, "Why, Daddy, do I have to go to hospital?" <laughs> she couldn't understand it. She's sick, and she just didn't understand. But may I say to you, her daddy was doing what he did. Because he thought it was the wisest thing, and because he loved her, and because it was the best thing that could be done under the circumstances. Oh, my friend, all of what God is doing here, you say, I don't understand it. Then just believe him. Remember, after all, you're a little baby. You won't understand. My little girl, she didn't understand why I took her to the hospital, and the doctor probed around and actually made her cry. That didn't seem to be very good. But oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now listen to verses 34 and 35. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him? Now, these questions that we have here, in authorized version, are simple enough. Now, the answer is not so easy, and therefore not forthcoming. Now, first of all, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Well, no one knows the mind of the Lord. That's the answer. It was Paul's ambition to know him. Paul says that I might know him. The power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And then, who hath been his counselor? No one can advise God. I've seen a lot of church boards that they felt like they they were really giving God advice. But he doesn't need it. The Lord Jesus, have you ever noticed, he never asked for advice when he was here on earth? One time he said, you remember... Where will we get food to feed the 5,000? And why did he ask them the question? He knew what he was going to do. He didn't need their advice. In fact, the matter is, he didn't use their advice. They said, send them away. <laughs> oh, he said, why, you going to give them something to eat. May I say to you, God doesn't ask for advice. A lot of folk want to give him advice today. And then three, who hath first given to him? Have you really ever given anything to God? You can't give him anything. Who's given anything to God, which put him in the awkward position of owing you something? Why, if you were able to give God something, he'd owe you something. And I think that's one reason that so many of us are so poor today is simply because, Fred, that we give him so little. To tell the truth, God says he won't get in debt to anybody. If anybody gives him something, God turns around around and gives them more. Someone asked a financier years ago, a wonderful Christian in Philadelphia, he says, how is it that God has blessed you so, and you have so much, and you've been giving away so much? Well, he says, you know, he says, I shovel it out, and God shovels it in, and God's shovel is bigger than my shovel. Oh, my friend, we're not giving God a chance to use his shovel, most of us are not. You can't do anything for him. Verse 36, for of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Friends, that just takes me to the mountaintops. Because out of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory unto the ages. Amen. Alfred label this verse, the sublimest apostrophe existing even in the pages of inspiration itself. Out of him means God is the all-sufficient cause and source of everything. Through him means he's the mighty sustainer and the worker in his universe. My God worketh hitherto, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work. That's what the Lord Jesus said. And unto him means God must call every creature to account to him. All things flow toward God. The glory belongs to him, and everything's going to come his way. Are we robbing God today of his glory, but taking credit for things we have no business to claim? The glory belongs to him. Oh, my friend, what a section of scripture we've been in, and reluctantly we leave it. And now we come to the twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. And this is the last major division that begins here with chapter 12. First, it was doctrine, the first eight chapters. 9, 10, and 11 was dispensational. Chapters 12 through 16, duty. We come now to the practical application of the theological arguments that we've had before us. Here the gospel walks in shoe leather, and that's where I like for it to walk. In the first part of the Romans, the reader saw displayed the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. But in this last section, the feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and we're to stand for the battle, we're to walk in our life, we're to run in the race. And someone may suggest that we've already had the practical and the sanctification. My beloved, the gospel walked in shoe leather there, it's true. But there is a sharp distinction in these two sections. Under sanctification, we're dealing with Christian character. In this section, we're dealing with Christian conduct. There, it was the inner man. Here, it's the outward manner. There, it was the condition of the Christian. Here, it is the consecration of the Christian. There, it was who the Christian is. Here, is what he does. We have seen the privileges of grace. We now consider the precepts of grace. Enunciation of the way of life must be followed by evidences of life. Announcement of justification by faith must be augmented by activity of life. Now, something else we should note as we proceed in this last section. Conduct of Christians must be expressed in this world. "...by his relationship to those with whom he comes in contact." These relationships must be regulated in some way. Now, it's so easy to put down rules of conduct. And Paul is not doing that. He's delivered us from the Mosaic law, and he didn't do that to put us under another law. There are a lot of Christians today, and they call themselves separated Christians, and they don't do this, and they don't do about 15 other things... I wish they did do something myself, and I wish they didn't gossip so much. I found out, those folk, you better watch them. Now, they ought to recognize that the child of God is not given rules and regulations, but Paul puts down here great principles that are to guide the believer. The Holy Spirit is giving the believer a roadmap of life, showing the curves, but he doesn't give the speed limit. And he identifies the motels and eating places which he recommends without commanding the believer to stop at any certain one. Detours are clearly marked. There's a warning to avoid them. The city of Vanity Fair is labeled and the routes of exit are clearly marked. The believer is told to leave without being given the exact route by which to leave. There are several routes. Now we're coming down from the mountaintop of Romans 8, 9 ten and eleven, and we leave the pinnacle of Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six and we plunge down now to the plane of duty, and I mean plane, the plain, the P L A I N and the P L A N E. Plain duty. This is where we all live. This is where we move and have our being. Now we have this section, first section faith. Next section hope. This section is love. And we have the service of the sons of God in chapters 12 through 13. Now the child of God has a relationship to God. That's in the first two verses. Then a relationship to the gifts of the Spirit. Relationship to other believers. Relationship to unbelievers. Relationship to government. Relationship to the neighbor. We're in the world. We're not of the world. But we need to recognize that there is a duty for the child of God in this world. Now, will you notice his relationship to God in verses 1 and 2? Listen to Paul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, will you let me give you my translation here? Therefore, I beg of you, brethren... By the mercies of God that ye yield or present your bodies, your total personalities, a living sacrifice set apart for God, well-pleasing to God, which is your rational or spiritual service. Now, you notice the therefore ties it into everything that has come before it. It has immediate connection with that which has just preceded it. But I am of the opinion that he's gathering up the whole epistle. And he says, I beg of you. That's the language of grace, not law. There's no thunder here from Mount Sinai. It's I beg of you. And Moses' command, the apostle exhorts. That's Paul's method. Could Paul have commanded? Well, he told Philemon that he could have given him a command, but he didn't. Now, this approaches a suggestion that no commandments follow. No fire on Mount Sinai. Mercies of God. And the plural is a Hebrewism. It just notes an abundance of mercy. God who's rich in mercy. God's got plenty of it, friends. He sure has to use a lot of it for me, but he still has plenty for you. And it means compassion and pity and the tenderness of God. His compassions never fail. Then we are called upon to yield, to present. Now, this is the same word we had, you remember, back in chapter 6. And it's been suggested that there it's to the mind, while here it is to the will. I think this is a false distinction. For the appeal in both is to the will. In the sixth chapter, it's the way to Christian character is to yield to him. Here it's the way to Christian consecration and conduct. Yield to him. And he says your body is your total personality. The body is the instrument through which we express ourselves. The mind, the affections, the will, and the Holy Spirit can use the body. Now, Vincent has assembled these scriptures which reveal this wide latitude. We're told to glorify God in our bodies, for you bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. According to my earnest expectation, my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. We need to recognize the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in him. This is the rational service. And it's well-pleasing to God. This is reasonable. Then he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Dr. Kenneth West, back at Moody Bible Institute years ago, in his very fine translations that he gives, actually it's more of an interpretation than... A translation, it's rather elaborate here, but it certainly is excellent, and I'd recommend it. I'm reading it. And stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you and is not representative of what you are in your inner being, but is patterned after this age. But change your outward expression to one that comes from within and is representative of of your inner being by the renewing of your mind, resulting in your putting to the test what is the will of God, the good and well-pleasing and complete will, and having found that it meets specifications, placing your approval upon it. Now, I recognize that that's rather elaborate, but may I say that's exactly what Paul is saying in this particular passage of Scripture. What he's doing is urging the believer not to fashion his life and conduct by those around him, even in the church, friends. Now, I know a group of folk, in fact, I know two or three groups of folk, that when they come together in a meeting, and they meet two or three times a week, apparently, they assume a front. That's not real at all. They're very super pious. My, I tell you, when they meet on Sunday night, you think they just had their halos shine. They're not normal. They're not natural. And yet, if you want to hear the meanest gossip, if you want to hear the dirty things, you meet with that group, but their front they put up. May I say, now, a child of God ought not to be like that. We ought to be normal and natural. Probably I should say normal and supernatural. It's so easy to play a part. After all, that's what the word hypocrite really means. Hypocrates in the Greek was the name given to actors. They were playing a part. Hypocrates means to speak a part, to answer back. It means to get your cue and to say the right thing at the right time. And that's acting. That's what hypocrisy is, to be something that you're not at all. I have learned over the years that some folk who flatter you to your face and smile and pat you on the back can be your worst enemy. Actually, they're dangerous to be with. It was Shakespeare, he said something about the world being a stage, and every man must play a part. Now, this is not true of the believer. He must be genuine because the Holy Spirit is working from within, transforming his life by renewing the mind. And again and again, Paul calls attention to that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with open face, beholding us in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, by doing this, that is, permitting the Spirit of God The believer will be able to test the will of God and find it good. The minute that you and I assume a pose and be something that we are not, it will be impossible for us to determine the will of God for our lives. The will of God for the life of the believer becomes good and fits the believer's will exactly. And it's first good and then it's acceptable. And finally, it's perfect in that the believer's will and God's will are equal to each other. And you can't improve on that kind of a situation. Paul could say, I can do all things. Where? In Christ who strengtheneth me, that which is his will. And it's wonderful today not to have to put on a pose, not to have to act the part of being a Christian, but just be normal. And let the Spirit of God move and work through you. Mole put it like this. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. Oh, to reach the place of just turning this over to the Lord. And Paul begs us to do this. This is a way of happiness. This is the way of joy. This is the way of fullness in your life. If you're in that kind of a group, my friend, for God's sake, get away from them and try to live a normal Christian life where you don't have to put on at all. Very frankly, a man said to me the other day, He said, you know, my wife and I, we've quit going to a certain group. And I said, why? And he told me, he said, we just got tired of going to a place where you almost have to assume something that you're not. He said that they're all there being absolutely abnormal. And he said, the way that I found it out, he said, one man there that was so super pious, he said, I then had an occasion to meet him in a business way, in his place of business. He said, I didn't recognize the man. His manner, everything was different. He was conformed to the world when he was with that group. Oh, to be a normal Christian. And that's the way of blessing. Now we have here the relationship to the gifts of the Spirit. And I want you to follow this very carefully. And watch your translation, for I'm going to read mine. For I'm saying through the grace given to me, to everyone among you, not to be thinking of himself more highly than that which it is necessary to think, but to think wisely, that is, of oneself, even as God has divided a measure of faith to each one. Now, I may have lost something there in that pungent statement. A man ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And when Paul wrote that, there was a whimsical smile on his face because there are a great many Christians that are ambitious. They feel like that they've got to get on. And I have found out in Christian work that a great many folk in the church want an office. If you want to be a successful pastor today and get a bunch of folk working like termites... Why, you create a great many offices of committees and chairmen and boards and have presidents of organizations, and you get a lot of people to work that'll never work on any other basis. Why? Because they think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. What we need to do is, as Paul says here, we ought to think soberly. And God has given to each one of us grace And Paul says, I'm saying this through the grace given to me. Paul says, the reason I'm saying this is because the Lord Jesus made me an apostle. And I'm speaking as an apostle now. And he's not begging right here at all. He says, I'm saying this to you that you ought not to have ambition to get up in Christian circles. There's always the ever-present danger of the believer overestimating his ability and his character and his gifts. We need to have a correct estimation of ourselves in relationship to other members of the church. I found out that when I became pastor of certain churches that I was asked to be on certain boards and certain organizations, be a board member. Well, I want to tell you, I was on about a dozen, probably fifteen. And I found out that I was really a board member, and I do not mean B-O-A-R-D, I mean B-O-R-E-D. I was bored for the simple reason I don't have gifts for that type of thing. To begin with, I don't have patience to sit and listen to a bunch of minutes that takes hours to read. And the second thing is that I just don't like to sit in a board meeting and listen to a group of incompetent men talk on spiritual matters. Now, I don't have a gift for that. Some men do. It took me a long time to find out I didn't have that gift. And I was killing myself going to board meetings. And I mean, B-O-R-E-D meetings. My, the Christian life became quite a round of being bored. And finally, one day I came to myself like a prodigal son. I sat down and wrote 12 and 15 letters and resigned from every one of them. And you know, that's the happiest day of my life. And today, I'm not on any board. I'm not on anybody's board. Now, I have several friends that they say to me, oh, won't you be on my board? And I say, no, I wouldn't help you. I have no gift. I'm for you and all that. I'll even pray for you. I can't be on your board. We ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I don't have gift for that. There's no use coming and asking me to do something like that. We need to recognize our inabilities and do the thing God wants us to do. And it's been a joy to get into the slot where God wants you to be. Now, will you notice verses 4 and 5? For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, this is the first time that Paul's introduced this great theme of the church as the body of Christ. That's interesting to note here. And over in Corinthians, and we'll deal with this thoroughly when we get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and probably more thoroughly than some folk would like for us to. But this is the primary subject in both of Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Colossians and First Corinthians, that the church is the body of Christ. Now, the church as the body of Christ is to function as a body. Now, that means that we have many members. In other words, you and I do not have the same gifts. You've got a gift that I could never exercise. And there are many members in the body, hundreds of members. And I do not think Paul ever gave a complete list of all the gifts, because every time he mentioned it, he always brought up new gifts that he didn't mention in the other list. And I think he did that purposely. The Spirit of God had him do that. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now, we have these gifts, the charismata. The Greek word for gifts comes from the same stem as the word for grace. And it can be translated as grace or free gift. These are something the Spirit of God gives you. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. What he did is he gave to the church men that had the gift of an apostle and prophet and evangelist what he's saying there now having gifts each member of the body of christ has a gift all have a function and they differ now that means the gifts differ but does not mean some do not have a gift every individual in the church has a gift and the gift is part and parcel of the grace of god to us when god saves you he puts you in the body of believers and you are to function, not to function as a machine, but to function as a member of a body, a living organization. Now, the gift is exercised, and it's confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think every believer needs to test this gift. If you have a gift and you feel like that you're using it, you ought to test it, make an inventory. Are you really a blessing to folk? Are you building up the church? Or are you dividing the church? Now, prophecy here does not refer to prediction, but to any message from God. And whether we prophesy, that is, we are to do it, you know, in a proportion, and that is a mathematical term. God supplies the faith and the power to match the gift. That is what he's saying here. Now, verses 7 and 8. Our ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Our active service is the word. Active service, I think, refers to a manifold ministry. And it has practical implications. You know, there are multitudinous forms of service in the body of believers that this office covers. Putting up chairs, giving out song books is a ministry. Some folk do not have a gift to speak. But they do have a gift to serve. Why, I know one dear lady, she can put on a dinner that'll make everybody happy. And I believe in church dinners. And if you look at me, you'll know I've been to quite a few of them. And quite a few that this lady put on. And that's her gift. I've told her that. And she would never make a good president of the Missionary Society. And you wouldn't want her to sing in the choir. But if you wanted to put on a church dinner... For some purpose, she's the one to get. These are gifts, friends, that they have. And we're told here on exhortation, that means one that comforts. Some people have the gift of comforting. I know some pastors. I know one pastor, he's not a preacher. He knows he is and says he is. But I want to tell you, if I was sick or I lost a loved one, he's the man that I want to come to see me. He can comfort. And then we are told, he that shares his earthly possessions. God may have given you a gift of making money. And that's a gift. I know several Christian businessmen. One man here in Southern California, he bought a piece of real estate so it would be a tax write-off. And the thing about tripled in value. (laughs) Anything he touches, he has a Midas touch. That's his gift. I've told him that. The Lord never asked him to speak on any occasion I hope he doesn't. I probably ought to emphasize something here. He that ruleth with diligence and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And it means he that leads. There are certain men that are leaders and they need to exercise that in the church. And he that shows mercy, that is the ability to enter a sick room. And some men have that gift. And when I say men, I mean women also. Now you have the relationship to other believers. Let love be without dissimulation. That is, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't pat another person on the back, another believer, and say something to them that's hypocritical that you don't mean. Let love be without hypocrisy. Express your hatred of that which is evil. Stick like adhesive tape to that which is good. These are three marvelous things for believers in his relationship to others. Don't be hypocritical with other believers. And then stand for something. Don't be a Mr. Milk toast. When you find out that there's something wrong in the church, stand up and say it, my friend. And when you are on a board and you find out that things are being done that are not honest, my friend, you are to stand up for the truth. We've got too many willy-nillies today. We've got too many goody-goody gumdrops, Priscilla bodies, these sweet little things today that haven't the intestinal fortitude to stand on their feet and stand for that which is honest. And that's the reason a great many fundamental churches are in trouble today, because... They don't have men and women with backbone to stand for the things of God. Express your hatred for that which is evil. That's the thing a Christian should do in relationship to other believers. Stick like adhesive tape to that which is good. Stand, have a principle. All the compromisers today inside of even our fundamental churches. Now he says, as to your brotherly love, have family affection one to another for your code of honor, deferring to one another. Never flag in zeal. That's business of not being slothful in business. That's not what he's talking about. Never flag in your zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit, serving the Lord. My, how wonderful these things are here. Have a code of honor and be aglow with the Spirit of God and never flag in zeal. Have a zeal for the things of God and serve the Lord. And that points everything in Christian conduct toward this focal point, serve the Lord, how important that is. Then as to your brotherly love, have family affection. Now two believers are closer together than two blood brothers if one of them is saved and the other's not. Here are three men sitting here. Two of them are identical twins. One's a Christian, the other's not. Sitting next to the believer is a man from Africa. His color of his skin is different. His whole culture, background is different, but he's a believer. Now, may I say that the twin that's a Christian and this black brother, they are closer together than than the twins are. I started to say two twins, but what other kind of twins are there? But two. And so they are closer together than that. And that's the reason that we should recognize we're in the same family. Now, you ought to be nicer to me than you are because you're going to live with me through eternity. And you better start trying to get along with me and putting up with my peculiar ways. But wait just a minute. I'll have a new body then. I'll get rid of the old nature, and you will too. It's going to make it better for both of us. Now, will you notice, verse 12 says, Rejoicing in hope. That is wonderful. The circumstances of the believer may not warrant rejoicing. The contrary may be true. But he sees the future, and in hope, he projects himself into other circumstances which are more favorable. I think of the brother down in my Southland years ago, that in a church service, they were giving their favorite scripture. And he got up and said his favorite was, it came to pass. And everybody looked puzzled. The preacher stood up, and he said, brother, how in the world can it came to pass Be your favorite. Well, he said, when I read in the Bible it came to pass, I know that when I have trouble or I have problems, that they came to pass, they didn't come to stay. And that there'll be a new day out there. May I say to you, that may not be the exact interpretation, but he sure is accurate in what Paul is saying here. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation and trouble. That's difficult to be, isn't it? continuing instant in prayer, be a man of prayer. And then he says, distributing to the necessity of saints. That's something that means sharing the necessities of the saints. We today in conservative circles don't do that very much. A great many churches make a great deal of having a deacon's fun or a fund for the poor, but they don't use it very much. And then pursuing hospitality. That is something that is needy. That is given to hospitality. He's to seek out other believers to whom they can extend hospitality. There may be some person in your group, whether it be a church or a group or neighborhood who's a Christian. That's backward. That is an introvert retiring. But they long for Christian fellowship. Now, if you're an extrovert, look them up, find them out, and then bless them who persecute you. Now, that seems a needless injunction to believers, for one believer ought not to persecute another. But experience tells us that they do that sort of thing. And it's difficult to bless the man who's kicking you, you see. Now, verses 15 and 16, rejoice with them that do rejoice. Now, the world's motto is, Laugh and the world laughs with you. But weep and you weep alone. For the sad old earth must, well, what? Borrow its mirth, but has trouble enough of its own. Well, that's not true of the child of God. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. That doesn't mean identical, but we're to have the mind of Christ And believers ought to enter emotionally into the lives of other believers. I think that this is something that makes genuine Christians so wonderful. I know that since I've had cancer, I even had one dear lady up in Oakland, California, that said, I'd be willing to take your place, take the cancer that you might live. And I'm a nurse, and I'll just come down and nurse you. Well, I wasn't that bad. But the point is, that moved me more than anything that's ever happened. I didn't realize, very candidly, because Christians that I was moving among, a lot of them weren't quite to that place. But I found out there are many folk that enter into your life. How wonderful it is. And that's as it should be. Now we're told here, not only... Be of the same mind one with another, but not minding high things, but associating with humble men and things of low estate. Stop being wise in your own opinion. By the way, what an injunction that is. Don't mind high things. You know, a great many of the saints think they're way up there spiritually, and they're not. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what kind of mind is that? Humble. And then he says, stop being wise in your own eyes. I think the constant temptation of the Christian is to feel that he's smarter than he really is spiritually. Solomon, who was a man given wisdom of God, he has a very interesting injunction. I'll just read it. And then go to the next subject. Proverbs 26:12 says, "Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. I didn't say it. Solomon said that. Now we come in verses seventeen through 21, the relationship to unbelievers. Now we live in a world of unbelievers. What is to be our relationship? Recompense to no man evil for evil. That's something a believer needs to be very careful about in his relationship to the world outside. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And there's nothing that has hurt the cause of Christ more than a dishonest Christian out there in the world. The world, you see, is not interested in whether you are a premillennialist or whether you believe in election or free will. In fact, the world's not even concerned about that. But they do want to know whether you pay your honest debts, whether you're truthful or not. They're very much interested in that. Are you a person that can be depended on? Would you make a good friend of an unbeliever? Could he depend on you? I say that this is better than giving out track. And again, if I may use an illustration, that Negro man down in Memphis, Tennessee, a white man came by and handed him a track. He said, what is that? (laughs) He said, that's a track. I want you to read it. He said, I don't read. He said, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll watch your tracks, my friend. (laughs) It's not the track you give out. It's the track that you're making through this world. May I say to you, that Negro man was accurate. Oh, how accurate that is. The world's watching the tracks that you make, not the tracks you give out. Don't misunderstand me. We should give out tracks. We sure better have a life that'll back it up if you're going to start giving out tracks. Now he says, recompense to no man, evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And I love this. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. And my friends, I like that because there's some people you just can't get along with them. They won't let you get along with them. But as much as possible, a dear lady who lived alone, a very wonderful Christian, called me one day and said she had a neighbor she couldn't get along with. Well, I thought maybe this lady here was living alone might be a little difficult. But she's a wonderful Christian, I knew that. And she wanted to know if I'd come out and talk to the neighbor. And I came out and talked to the neighbor. And I want to tell you, that neighbor told me what she thought of me also, as well as her neighbor. And so I just went back next door, told this wonderful Christian. I said, I think you don't need to worry about her anymore. You can get along with her. Nobody can get along with that woman. I said, just forget it. I said but just as much as within you. He didn't say you had to get along with them, but just do the best you can. This is an area, by the way, which is quite wonderful. Now, a lot of folk you can't get along with. Now, verses 19 and 20. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him to drink, for in so doing... Thou shalt heap coals of fire in his head. Now, this is probably one of the greatest principles that you'll find in the Word of God. And this is the most difficult thing for a child of God. When somebody hits you on one cheek, it's difficult to turn the other cheek. Or like the Irishman, he was hit on one cheek, and he got up, and he turned the other cheek, and the fellow hit him and knocked him down. Then he got up, and he just beat this stuffing out of the other fellow. And somebody said, Why in the world did you do that? You turned the cheek. Why didn't you leave it like that? Well, he said, I'll tell you why. The Bible says turn your cheek. Now, I had only one other cheek to turn. The Lord didn't tell me what to do after that, so I did what I thought I ought to do. Well, that's what most of us do. We do what we think we ought to do. Well, friends, actually, you and I find it difficult today not to hit back. But the minute that you and I take the matter in our own hands and attempt to work the thing out, and especially when we've been done wrong, to come back and hit as hard as we can, we take that matter out of the hands of God, and we're no longer walking by faith. What he's saying here is, you walk by faith with me, and let me handle the matter for you, because I'll handle it fair. I'll handle it in a just manner. And if this party needs to be taken care of, I'll take care of them. The Lord will do that. And God says, you trust me. And you and I can turn this over to the Lord and say, Lord, and I think we ought to do it. Lord, this party's injured me, has done me wrong, has said something about, lied about me, has been dishonest in money matters and in other ways. Now, I'm turning them over to you. You said you didn't want me to handle it. You handle it. And I think we ought to do that. Now, I find that the most difficult thing in the world to do. But there have been one or two times when I've turned it over to the Lord. And I'm amazed how well he handles it. He does it lots better than I do. I had a man that did me injury. He was an officer in the church. And he did me an awful injury, terrible injury. And my first thought was to clobber him. But I thought of this passage, and I went to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I'd like to hit him. I'd like to do something about this. And I could. But I said, I don't think I will. I'll turn it over to you, and I expect you to handle it. I saw that man the other day. I've never looked at a person as unhappy as that man is. He's had trouble, friend. I mean, he's had trouble. The Lord has taken that fella to the woodshed, and he's whipped him in an inch of his life. And you look in that man's face today, and you can't help but feel sorry for him. Because the Lord will handle the case for you. I know that. And I wish I could say to you, I turned all of them over to the Lord. Sometimes I hit back, friend. Now, verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, he's saying, stop being overcome of evil. Overcome evil by means of good. The believer walks through this evil world with its satanic system. He cannot fight it. If you start fighting this satanic system, my friend, it'll whip you. Nor you can't adopt the same worldly tactics of hate and revenge. If you do, it means sure defeat. Now, God has given the believer the good, the Holy Spirit. needs to walk in the Spirit. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if we live in the Spirit, Paul says, let us also walk in the Spirit.